Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday, September 29th, 2015, and I'm Jeff Salzman coming to you, as always, from beautiful Boulder, Colorado. I'm here with our multi-talented and multi-perspectival Daily Evolver producer, Brett Walker. How's it going, Brett? Hey, that's me. <laughs> that's you. I'm multi-perspectival. <laughs> that's true. And uh, hello to Corey DeVos, who is handling things over at Integral Radio. And to you, our live listeners, particularly who are here joining us at our new home at Integral Radio, which is a new feature of Integral Life, which is the leading website for the worldwide Integral community. That's our home and the home of Ken Wilbur and really hundreds of hours of wonderful archives that are streaming free around the clock on Integral Radio. We have a nicely growing group of listeners here at the Daily Evolver podcast. And I know a lot of you don't know the integral jargon, and I try to minimize it, but there are some terms and maps that are helpful. So check those out. And if you're listening later on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever, uh, you can go to dailyevolver.com, click the theory tab at the top of the homepage, and you can find those charts as well. A couple things we want to get to tonight. The main topic for the podcast is the visit to the Americas by Pope Francis this past week. Or, as we say, uh, we know the Pope is Catholic, but is he integral? And I will be joined in addressing that question by my special guest tonight, who will be with us live from New York. Live from New York. It'll be Father David McCallum, who is a longtime friend of Integral, a Jesuit priest, and many of you know and love him. He's a contributor on Integral Life as well. But first, before we get to the Pope, I'd actually like to step back a stage or two, or three even, in the evolution of human spirituality. Back before science, for sure, but also before monotheism. Way back to when the world was alive with spirits and omens, and the and nature was just in every way drenched in meaning. And I went to that world uh, briefly the other night, Sunday night, and you may have too. Did any of you see that blood moon, the super blood moon, the other night? That thing scared the crap out of me. I had heard, you know, about this special lunar eclipse, this super blood moon, which happens only every 20 years or so. But, you know, I didn't think too much of it, and I don't normally have very good luck with that sort of thing. It's always cloudy or something, or I miss it. You know? But I thought I ought to at least walk out my front gate to see if there was anything worth looking at. So I did, and it was like, whoa. There it was, this big, full moon rising above the horizon, but extra big in the sky because the moon was at its perigee, which is the closest point to the Earth. And that can be impressive enough. But this night, it was being slowly covered by a red blood stain, creeping up and drenching the whole face of the moon. It was indeed the blood moon. And it was spooky. Especially when I first saw it, it was startling and scary. And, of course, thank God I had a handy scientific explanation. Because otherwise, you know, I would have been freaked. You know, I would have wanted to run back into the house and sacrifice poor little Gracie May, the pug. But uh, I didn't, uh, because the scientific explanation sort of rings out the fear, in a way. And this is, of course, great progress for humanity, because we realize that, you know, the Earth is perfectly balanced between the Sun and the Moon, or perfectly aligned in their orbits, uh, but the sunlight still shines around the edges of the Earth's atmosphere, and it turns the light red, and it's basically projecting this red light onto the moon, much like a sunrise or a sunset. So the moon appears to be slowly being drenched with blood, red, purplish, brown. And it's stunning and beautiful, even if you know what's actually causing it, the eclipse. But what if we didn't know 
what's causing it? What if we didn't know the science of the thing? And if we were living at a tribal stage of development? And of course, this is an opportunity to do some integral practice because at integral, we're multi-perspectival. That's one of the skills or markers of integral thinking is the ability to <clears throat> see things through different sets of eyes, through somebody on the left, through somebody on the right, the east, the west, pre-modern, post-modern, modern. And so these pre-modern stages of development, what we see on the altitude chart as being the tribal or red or even the archaic, uh, the first stage of development, these are all still installed in us. Remember, one of the principles of evolution is that evolution includes what exists and transcends it with something new. So these pre-modern levels of consciousness are still very much online in a way. We, we may not be in touch with them, but that's one of the integral projects is getting back in touch with them. So that when we see something like a blood moon that is mind-blowing, we want to remember to take an opportunity to get in touch with what we are when our mind is offline, when our mind is blown. So we look at the blood moon as if we didn't know what it was. We look at the blood moon with a pre-modern mind. And so at that stage, and we do this as a practice, we don't do this to be successful, you know, we do this to be faithful. This is the, the wonderful definition of a spiritual practice, the thing you do to be faithful. And so you do your best to tune into an experience of seeing this at the consciousness where all of nature is real, alive, immediate. We are not only in relationship with it, we are it. We are deeply embedded in it in ways that are actually difficult for the modern mind to comprehend. Everything is local, tactile, drenched in meaning. And so in our practice of getting in touch with our tribal consciousness, we have no concept of the moon, you know, being 238,000 miles away. I mean, what's that? For us, the moon is what it appears to be, an object in the sky that is always just out of reach, maybe a few hundred feet off the ground, floating, gliding in various forms just over our heads, over the treetops, just over the mountaintop. So to see it one night slowly begin to turn a bloody scabrous red would have to be portentous. It would have to mean something. There's no other option for human beings. Human beings are meaning-making creatures. We can't help ourselves. We're homo sapiens. We think about things. My dogs weren't interested in the super blood moon, but I was. And just because I have a modern and postmodern consciousness laid over top of the pre-modern, that doesn't mean that it can't still be spiritually potent. And it's cool to see how people are, you know, doing that. Uh, in fact, Brett, you were talking about, did, were, were you hearing people at the Integral Center talking about this and, you know, what it meant for them? And Yeah. A friend of ours is going through some heavy stuff emotionally. And as we talked about it, we realized that all of us seem to be going through it right now. Someone mentioned that there's been a great, unraveling in recent months that's preparing us all to give birth to something new. So there's still a connection to these larger forces, real or imagined. Somebody said, wow, there's the supermoon, plus Venus is in retrograde, and Saturn, I think, is leaving the sign of Scorpio. Of course, energies are intense, and passions are stirring, and people are doing shadow work. These are well-educated, highly developed people. It's like we need to have something larger to hitch these energies onto to help us manage them or make sense of them, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, this is where I think integral really helps because we can see that enchantment that's, it's the pre-trans fallacy in a way. It's the pre-trans, uh, you know, delineation that there's an enchantment of the world that precedes reason. 
And this is the world of, you know, everything spiritual and, 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 and you know, spirits everywhere and uh, superstitions and uh, sacrifice and amulets and idols and all of that stuff. And then reason comes along or the scientific stage of development, the, the orange modernity on our chart, and rings that out of the system. And actually, that ringing begins the traditional. Traditional really wants to begin ringing the, the spirits and magic out of the system. But then there's a stage that's post or transrational, where that enchantment can be brought back forward to a new sacred world that is not limited by a magic or myth mythic belief system, you know. But it's also not limited by the modern scientific, not scientific, but scientific worldview. The one that says, if it can't be sensed and measured, it doesn't exist. And, you know, collapses the world into the exteriors, or what we would say the right-hand quadrant. And then that enchantment beyond science is, you know, it's not mythic, it's not tied to different stories, and, it, you know, it's not necessarily about us in the way that we thought it was. But it also refuses to ignore the fact that life is just deeply astonishing, you know, starting with the mere fact that there's something instead of nothing. I still don't understand why there's something instead of nothing. I think that is the biggest miracle of them all. I guess it is, right? And that that something has turned into me and us. And that something continues to evolve into more than me and us. And we continue in ever, you know, greater unfoldings of, of goodness, truth, and beauty. And that is a cause for constant astonishment. I mean, we are living in a created world of just wow. And that's, you know, we want to get that back, that mind-blown quality. And of course, it's easy to do with the blood moon because you walk out your front door and it's like, wow! You know, I mean, we're all going to die. <laughs> but, I mean, it's clear. There's no doubt what that blood moon meant. But you could also do this with, as a practice again, with any random tree. You know, you could look at it, you can encounter it as if you know nothing about it, and it'll speak to you in very, very powerful ways. So, you know, as I forget who said it, but it's so true, there's two ways to live your life. One is as if nothing were enchanted, and the other is, if, is as if everything was enchanted. Let me say that again. Two ways to live your life. One is as if everything were enchanted, and the other is as if nothing were enchanted. And the former, where you're realizing the enchantment, is an integral practice. So, I, I want to, you know, just touch in with that and then walk back up the stages of spiritual development to where we can get to the topic of the week, which is the current state of the Catholic Church, Christianity, uh, and of course this amazing Pope that made such a beautiful impact on me, even, <laughs> and, and lots of people uh, in his visit here to the United States and, and Cuba. So, um, again, just to walk up really quickly the stages, early spirituality, the one about where the blood moon is deeply portentous, uh, that's nature-based because we don't really yet have the structures of mind to contain larger patterns, basically. But eventually, we do learn the patterns. We just keep noticing and talking to each other. And over generations, we learn that the moon does that sometimes. And that we build stonehenges. And we map the constellations and the movements of the heavenly bodies. And we develop gods that are more mythic, that are bigger, that are of other worlds. And these are the red power gods, the red warrior gods, that stage of development, like Thor and Zeus and gods of the heavenly bodies that still bear their names. Venus, Mars, Jupiter, they're still, you know, those are our planets. And, you know, finally, as is the want of humanity, we kind of get bored with that. It's, you know, the good old Peggy Lee line. Is that all there is? <laughs> and then something new arises that includes that, 
It may suppress that. It generally, the new stage does want to suppress the previous stage. We'll get to that in a minute. But there is a new consciousness that arises that, that says, okay, we've gone as far as we can go with this God's thing. As you know, there's multiple gods. It's time for a new realization, and that is the realization of one God. One God, transcendent God, who's bigger than nature, bigger even than the cosmos, and this kicks off the era of monotheism, uh, which is the beginning of the move to the traditional stage of development, the amber altitude of development. Or in non-theistic Buddhism, uh, the non-theistic religions, it's still, you know, a transcendent uh, polarization between transcendent good, nirvana, and corrupted, full of suffering, samsara. So it's still the same move in consciousness, whether it's theistic, as in the West, the Abrahamic religions, or in the non-theistic sense. Either way, one of the key projects of traditionalism is to suppress magic, superstition, idol worship, all forms of nature-based or these red cosmologies of gods. In fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments, which brings this online, the first four of them are all about, you know, first of all, I'm the only god, all other gods out. No worshiping idols, amulets, no magic, no none of that. And then two commandments and how to worship God. And then, and only then, do we get to the, you know, don't lie, don't steal stuff. And this comes online historically, actually, kind of brutally. This is the, the sort of that red-amber stage of uh, warriors on the red side of the street, but holy on the amber side of the street, on the tra traditional side of the street. So we have holy warriors. Right now, we see the most extreme examples of this today with the ISIS the Muslims who are destroying these pagan towns, the temples and the statues of the pagan cultures that came before it. And it's so interesting to see how we interpret that, as that these people are brutal, nihilistic, that they are just interested in creating chaos. And that misses the interiority of what they're actually doing, which is that they actually feel like they're clearing out the world for their God and for the world that God wants us to have, which will lead to our salvation. And they're being faithful to the first four commandment, which is actually part of the Muslim religion as well. But for some reason, we want to default to a, basically a first-tier standard explanation that they're evil and brutal and wanting to wreak havoc and destroy everything. Uh, but no, this is really, you know, basically standard practice for the move into monotheism and traditionalism. I can remember growing up in my little Edinburgh Christian church, just an independent Bible church, where we were very, very you know, proud, I guess, probably the wrong word, but we were sure in our doctrine that we weren't to have statues and we weren't to have, you know, it's one of the reasons we saw ourselves as being superior to the Catholics who had statues of Mary. They worshiped Mary, is what we thought. And they have those rosaries, which is these little magical beads. And we don't do that because the Bible doesn't do that. And that's that impulse to really just clear the decks. And it's one of the most fascinating things about the Catholic Church, I realized, you know, in my hopefully wiser adulthood, is that it is an astonishing institution that one of the few, maybe the only, that does it in the, uh, you know, as, as extensively as it does, but it, it spans virtually every meme on the planet and serves them in ways that, you know, it's not always perfect and it's not always pretty, but serves them in ways that are meaningful to people at all of those stages of development. And furthermore, it, it also, you know, of course, brings forth, if we're, we're walking up the stages, it brings up the full um, flowering of monotheism, which 
is the teachings of Jesus, which is this other realization that says, okay, you had all the laws, the commandments, all of that stuff. Now, all of those can be subsumed into a new one overarching law, the law of love. It's astonishing. It came online in the East as well with the Heart Sutra uh, in Buddhism, which is the, the kicking off the Mahayana Buddhism, where you know the Bodhisattva vow, Nirvana, and Samsara are one. But Jesus' teachings and the te- teachings of the Catholic Church are, well, again, astonishing, uh, uh, shockingly world-centric, and perhaps best transmitted to us tonight by one of its devoted practitioners. And I think this may be my cue to welcome onto the podcast my dear friend, Father David McCallum, who I'm very happy to have joining us now from New York. Good evening, David. How are you? Hey, Jeff. I'm so delighted to be with you and with your listeners. Thanks so much. Yeah, my pleasure. It's really wonderful to have you here. And I know it's been quite a couple weeks for you. I mean, you're in the church. You're a Jesuit priest. This pope is of course, as I said, touching many people. Uh, it seems to touch everybody in a way. I mean, the speech to Congress, to the United Nations, there's an electricity about the guy, and yet he's not fully on anybody's team politically, and he has supporters on the right and on the left. He's doctrinally conservative in, in that there's you know no abortion, gay marriage, female priests, so forth. But liberal in terms of supporting social justice, has a critique of capitalism, the consumer culture, pro-environmentalist, and yet all wrapped up in this tone of love trumping all, which is really something, you know, so that, you know, he loves you, the church loves you no matter who you are or what you've done. I even, I mean, this this line to the atheist just wrecks me. He, you know, he said, if you can't pray for me, you can at least wish me well. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so anyway... This has the fragrance of integral consciousness to me, and I want to ask you how you see it. So, uh, David, here's the question. We know the Pope is Catholic. That's established fact. But is the Pope integral? (laughs) Well, you know, I think of it in terms of um, playing poker. You know, there's tells that uh, express uh, what a person's hand is, and you can pay attention to them if you're really looking for the right things. And I think the same thing when you look at when you look at Pope Francis, when you listen to his words, when you pay attention to his actions, um, there's a lot of that evidence. So I'll explain, you know, along the lines of integral, what some of those tells might be. One of them you've alluded to in your earlier comments is that the capacity to see the good of the meaning making that's going on at every step of the spiral of development. Mm-hmm. And to be able to affirm that good while at the same time challenge what's unhealthy or out of balance. So while that potential is always within the Catholic Church, it does take certain leadership to be able to see from the later stages and to be able to affirm that without projecting in an absolutist way what that good might look like for everybody else. And so, more concretely, you know, Pope Francis meets with people who are from indigenous peoples in the Andes when he went to uh, to Bolivia. And these are people who in the Andes speak Quechua and they offer um, offerings of coca leaves to Pachamama, the Earth Mother, and they also, hmm. you know, uh, they also attend Eucharist and, you know, participate in communion and um, they offer libations to the Earth. And the Pope had no problem with this because he understands I think in a very respectful and reverential way, this is the authentic expression of these people's belief and their way of integrating their own native traditions with with that of the church. Well, if I may stop you there, would you contrast that to previous popes? How did other popes deal with this sort of indigenous stage of Catholicism? Well, it's it's been a mixed bag, but I should say, <laughs> in all <laughs> honesty, 
I have never been so captivated by any pope until this one. So I think my, my data may not be as good and my, my, uh, my sort of accuracy. But um, I understand that at various times, for instance, when uh, John Paul II would go to the Philippines or to um, islands in the, um, in the Pacific where islanders would wear grass skirts and women would you know, be topless, that this was completely acceptable because... Mm-hmm. He knew that this was uh, the, the native tradition, um, and I think there was a kind of broad-mindedness, you know. There, I I suspect Benedict wouldn't have felt the same way, but that's that's just my projection. Yeah. I don't know for a fact. Yeah, um, and, and and these are the last two, and and we know that um, you know if we look historically, there was you know the treatment of the indigenous population by the Catholic Church as a whole other complexion. If we go back a few hundred years, it's so true. You know. You know and I mean, that's astonishing, too. Yeah, there's an expression in Catholic theology called syncretism, which is something that people became uh, a little bit suspicious of. When the Jesuits went to China, for instance, they went in as basically the, the uh, scholars and um, holy teachers to get into the court of the emperor, and they did so in such a way that um, they respected the, um, all the rituals offered for the elders, and they understood that part of Confucian uh, ancestor worship is very much like the communion of saints yeah. in Catholic theology. They were comfortable with that. But when others saw what the Jesuits were up to, they were very uncomfortable. There was an either-or attitude rather than the both-and. And um, I think that's a really con- significant kind of indicator of where a person is on the developmental spectrum, their capacity to think in that both-and kind of way. Yeah, well, that's interesting to me to think of the Jesuits in general. Um, of course, Pope Francis is a Jesuit, and I think the first Jesuit pope ever, right? That's right. Isn't that something? And, you are Je- and you're a Jesuit, too. I am. And so, I guess, what's up with you Jesuits? <laughs> well, i got to tell you this. When, when Pope Francis was elected, none of us believed that this was possible. To really? Be with you. No. From the time I, I entered the Jesuits 25 years ago, I was told there will never be a Jesuit pope. And it was something that we just grew to take for granted, right? It was like, okay, we take a vow of obedience to the pope, so of course we're never going to be one. And there's, a, there's all this rule against ambitioning within the Jesuits for higher offices. And, you know, we're essentially putting ourselves at the service of the church um, not to strive for those high offices. So when that happened, I, I basically said, no, you can't be right. Somebody made a big mistake here. Yeah. But sure enough, you know. Um, yeah. Well, and many of us were actually suspicious of Francis because his reputation as Jorge Bergoglio was not exactly so positive in our circles. Really? How so? When, when he was leading the Jesuits in Argentina, it was incredibly tumultuous. Uh, during their civil war, during the time of the, the disappearances of people uh, under the, the prone government, and as a result, um, he had to take very hard steps and measures to reel people in, including people who were far on the left and espousing a kind of Marxist uh, liberation theology, and then on the far right, those who were very much um, in line with the government. And um, his leadership, coming from a 36-year-old guy responsible for a tremendous amount of um, authority there uh, within the Jesuit order, he was very divisive. Um, hmm. As bishop, he was kind of heavy-handed, and um, as archbishop, he was known for having this kind of rigorous streak that um, some people were very suspicious of. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I don't think anybody in the, in the Cardinal's Curia expected what they got when really? they elected this Pope. Yeah. It's what do you think they expected? the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right on. Uh, what, do you, what, do you think they expected more of a, you know, uh, transitional, more than transformational Pope, you might say? Very likely. Yeah. Very likely. Yeah. So, you know, so he's a transformational pope, right? You think? Yeah, I think he is. You know, another one of those um those indicators of his uh, integral nature is when when a person is able to really integrate within themselves the the forces of power and love. Yeah. 
Um, this is this is very very sophisticated. It's not that you have to be um, always in the later stages to do so, but the ability to wield so much influence and to do it in a way that's not authoritarian or autocratic, that is truly empowering, and at the same time to have this profound ability to connect with people in a compassionate, loving way, as he does, to live with such simplicity, to eschew all the trappings you know, of his office. Um, it's pretty extraordinary. The temptations are huge, yeah. but, but he has such a degree of inner freedom from those attachments that you know, most of us fall prone to um, that it's pretty good indication of how mature he is, um, spiritually as well as, I think, in terms of consciousness. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I'd say another one is he's able to transcend people's projections of him and continue to stay fresh. He doesn't allow himself to be put into a box. So I think people are waiting often on the edge of their seats to understand what he's going to say next because he's not really predictable. Yeah. He's got this freshness, this spontaneity, and that's what you'd expect from a post-conventional person. Well, yeah, it's true. And, and the, I love what you said a minute ago, the inner freedom. I mean, that's, um, that there's, there's, we have antenna for that somehow, don't we? When mm-hmm. we run into somebody with inner freedom, uh, th- there's something that is um, riveting about mm-hmm. that person. And I always think of something that Chokum Trumpa said, the Tibetan uh, priest who founded the, the Naropa and Shambhala here in Boulder, mm-hmm. that the ones at the highest stage of development, or the highest realization, as he would put it, uh, are marked by an unusual characteristic, playfulness. Yeah, yeah. And I see that in this Pope, and it's just, you just want to smile. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's yeah. something. It's fun to feel that. I mean, to feel, the, we would say at Integral, that's actually, you know, the ideas and what he's saying is, is inspiring me in, in the left-hand quadrants in terms of my thinking and consciousness. But there's also something chemical. You know, there's also something vibrational and energetic that where the one log is lighting the other, <laughs> you know, and I feel lit up and transmitted. There's a word for this, that there's a transmission that comes from this. I think that you saw a lot of evidence for that. If you were watching the, the televised coverage of the congressional um, address, because when you see people from both sides of the aisle tearing up, you know, as they resonated with things that the Pope was saying. Yeah. Um, Republicans and Democrats. Yeah, exactly. To see Marco Rubio, you know, wiping tears away from his eyes and Boehner. And and also, obviously, you know, our our vice president, who's got a reputation also for being kind of a softy. There's a sense in which he's, he's really touching everybody across those party lines through ideological filters. Not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I would say about that, that event is that he was calling people to be their best selves and for us to be the best nation that we were founded to be. Um, so the capacity of a visionary and a transformational leader is to do just that. It's to inspire by virtue of their own witness. And um, it's interesting if you think about his his charisma you know, of course, some of it is his positional power, right? He wears yeah. the white, the white garb, and he was gleaming up on that podium, you know, in that uh, in that uh, Congress chamber. However, he's also a guy with one lung. He's <laughs> wearing ortho- orthopedic shoes. You know, he's seventy-eight years old. Yeah. He doesn't speak English as his first language. Yeah. But he was communicating loads on so many frequencies. Yeah. No, I agree, and it makes me. Um excited and, and and certainly curious about the future of this amazing church of yours, you know, that's been around so long. And, you know, we talk about how it relates to the, every stage of development and it really works globally all over the world, all the good stuff. But, you know, the, the place where it's maybe not working so good or hasn't been is as or none, none of the, you know, traditional religions, you would say, is with the postmoderns. Mm. You know, with liberals. And this is where maybe there is a move that the church makes, led by Francis, where, you know, it's about the, those the good green values of 
helping people and, and rehabilitating the victims and sinners and bringing them back into the fold and um, helping the poor. I mean, what could be more motivating to people at the postmodern stage than helping mm. the poor? And of course, Integral includes that. It you know, right. includes all of that. Um, and maybe uh, Post Pope Francis has a... I mean, how do you see that, David? How, you know, the, the church, where's where it? Five years, 10 years, 20 what do you think? Well, I think, you know, regarding the, the green, the, the sort of postmodern wave, one of the challenges which you reverted to earlier in your comments was the way in which so many of us at green get stuck in a very rationalistic and scientific way of looking at the world. So while the social justice agenda and the inclusion right, of the Catholic Church might resonate very much, and also the orientation to community, which is so important, for, for the church. A lot of that stuff really resonates with po- folks at that uh, postmodern uh, level. Mm-hmm. However, the, the rationalistic way of approaching the world, that kind of enlightenment um, sort of oriented uh, way of thinking, and the relativistic way of thinking often gets in the way of that appropriation by the cosmos of us, right? That experience of being awestruck, yeah. that experience of being um, really taken up in wonder and in humility before the magnificence and the mystery, right, of the human person or, or nature or of art. Um, there's something that flattens out during that, that particular time in our development. And one of the things that's interesting about the church is if you hang in there long enough, there's something that re-engages us. Uh, Paul Ricoeur, the philosopher, called it a second naivete, it's like being able to come to a new innocence around a familiar thing and see it with fresh eyes. Um, I'll just use the example, you know, many times when scripture scholars are studying the Bible in a historical critical way, it just becomes like every other piece of literature, right? And you study it scientifically, you think about it in a historical critical way. It's really hard to find where the numinous quality is. Right. But I got to tell you, like at some point after my study of theology and I went back and all of a sudden there were passages that I'd read 150 times and all of a sudden they were speaking to me in a totally different way. And I'd get chills and think to myself, well, what is this? You know, I, I know that this was a historically conditioned author writing this and there was a whole political agenda. So it's the ability to make space for grace yeah. and transcendence alongside, right, everything else. Right. It's not an either-or. So Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I think that, you know, even if you look at, so what's integral spirituality going to be that is different than what we might call green or progressive spirituality? And green progressive spirituality, you know, it, it's not as scientific as modern, as, you know, modernism is, where it just basically wrings all interiors out of the system. Right. You know, post-modernity begins to, you know, we can dance in the woods again, and we can, you know, have amulets and statues and crystals, and we can get back in touch with energies, and we can re-embrace a lot of, you know, the myth and magic that was left behind. But there still seems to be one bridge too far, and that's God. You know, that's some sort of a a personal creator who sees me and loves me. Isn't that amazing that people can open up their their hearts and their minds to notions of magic, but not to some kind of personal transcendence? Yeah. That's, you know, I think that's part of our challenge around language and about finding... Uh, in a sense, new metaphors, new and more appropriate and often scientifically inspired language. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, one of the, one of the great um, introductions of the late 20th century is, you know, all the language coming from, from physics. It's given people a whole new lease on thinking about God yeah. and extricating God from this uh, kind of limited box that you know we put God in that it, um, it's very very freeing uh, to think in new categories that yeah. uh, the quantum physics provides yes and the big bang <laughs> itself you know that w- there, there was 
a creative act uh, 13.8 billion years ago that is still reverberating today. You know, we're still in our human minds and hearts uh, continuing to create, mm-hmm. you know. And that's a revelation given to us by science. You know, I mean, there's a spiritual path in there somewhere. And I don't know whether the uh, traditional religions are going to be able to sort of lead the way. Probably not. I mean, maybe some. I don't know. I, just, I, I actually get confused here. I mean, why not? The, the most exquisitely educated and, you know, creative people on the planet. But also the church has a certain conservative function. Yeah, I just, I just don't know. But I do know that just even theoretically, David, if we're integral theory is, is, you know, has anything going for it, it's that, you know, a more complete picture is going to include the second person of divinity. Yep. This is something that Ken t- wrote about in, 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 in Integral Spirituality, the first, second, and third persons of God. Steve McIntosh has a new book coming out. It's out now, actually, called The Presence of the Infinite. That oh, really he, he was going to send me one. I yeah, to remind him. <laughs> well, you, it's it's you know I've read it of course, and you know he's my neighbor, but uh, it's it's really makes a great argument for bringing back uh, or bringing forward a, a relationship with the Creator. Well, you know, Imagine. I have to tell you, I mean, you've you've lived long enough, and and I've lived long enough to have experiences of people in our own lives who have given up on God. And then there is a moment in their lives, and they've never encountered integral, but they have come to um, a liminal point in right. their lives. Um, the death of a mother or father, for instance. Just today, uh, a friend of mine from college called, and he was on his way down to New York City to Sloan Kettering, where his mother's dying of cancer. And, um, you know, it's really something how these precarious moments, right? The word actually precarious means to come to our knees in prayer yeah. because we've, we've reached the limit of our current way of making sense or of living. And we realize that there's a kind of chasm that we face. And unless we take that leap of faith, we're going to be caught short. Yeah. So, you know, whether um, someone's reading Ken and that can come to that through some kind of an intellectual appropriation um, ultimately, it's got to happen through the heart and through their opening up to uh, dimensions of life, which are a little bit beyond our full comprehension and yeah. explanation. Yeah, I, um, I, I St- Steve uh, quotes Blaise Pascal, a wonderful line yeah. that yeah. says that human things need to be seen to, to be loved, but divine things need to be loved to be seen. Mm, I like that. That is a great Pascal quote. He's got a lot of good quotes. Really? I don't yeah. know much about him, but that, that made me want to know more about him. Oh, he's Jesuit educated. Oh, is he? <laughs> well, that explains it. <laughs> terrible. I'm so biased. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, you know, it's interesting. Me. I mean, I, I think of, um, in some ways, I mean, I, don't, I know enough about this to be dangerous, but, you know, I think of Jesus himself and the teachings of Jesus in coming out of the you know a, a, a completely ethnocentric Jewish milieu, offers salvation to everybody. That's right. You know, I mean, it, that's astonishing. Well, or if you read some of Paul's letters, like to the Colossians, yes, and you get this hymn to the cosmic Christ. Yes. I mean, that was written within thirty years of the death of Jesus, and. It's it's as if, you know, he's had this vision of how the Christ is both the source and the recapitulation of all of creation. Yeah. And it's it you know, your 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 word about he's got salvation over everyone, there's that sense that everything, nothing is limited, everything will be taken up in the embrace of, of that uh, that God of compassion. Yeah. Um and you know, I think people really get hung up on the power piece, right? So, okay, I can't believe in an omnipotent God because, you know, suffering has happened to me and how could God let that happen? But I think that when we come to recast God's ultimate power as an unconditional love, right, and 
we see that God's power is manifest on the cross as Jesus dies and submits himself in faith right, to this will that's beyond him. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a different kind of power than the one that we're most acquainted with yeah. in the world. Well, and I think it's really uh, interesting to those of us who, uh, you know, are evolutionaries or, you know, see human consciousness as, as, as having evolved over time, that that's true uh, in the, you know, sort of aggregate. But all along the way, there are people who are spiking into genius. Uh, in fact, before we got on the call, you were talking about you just come from a concert where you saw a genius blues musician, That's and right. you were, you know, blown away, good old blown away, you know. Uh, but, but you know, spiritually, we get these great masters of all time who spike into the highest levels of realization. And there's just, I mean, we, we, we are riveted by their teachings, we are inspired, we are lit up by their teachings. Jesus is certainly preeminent among them. And of course, we get it all wrong, and we interpret it at our level, and we, you know, hit each other over the head with it. But the original teaching is just sort of, uh, you know, a, 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 a brilliant spike into, you know, the greatest realization available to humanity. Yeah, I would use another metaphor too. It's it's a seed, and when you think about the seed and the potential within it to become, you know, a full-grown oak tree, for instance, the seed potential of Christianity is tremendous. Um, You can trace it through all the tiers. You could trace it through all the spiral, you know, sort of levels. You can, you can discern um, at the most basic indigenous levels, um, something very earthy and, um, and very, very simple. And at the same time, you read the mystics like Meister Eckhart or John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila or Ignatius of Loyola. And you realize, my gosh, there's a transformational consciousness that they are actually expressing in their writing. And it creates pathways for people to follow yeah. and imitate, right? So Ignatius's spiritual exercises were just that. They're, they were intended to create a pathway, a groove, right, in human consciousness yeah. that, that would be deep enough. That never existed before. Yeah, and that many A new people, groove. Oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and very much about transcending oneself, finding inner freedom from attachments and fears so that w- one could put oneself wholly in the service of God's will. And not God's will as purely something transcendent and outside of oneself, because Ignatian spirituality is dialogical. It includes both one's own deepest, truest desires, kind of filtered and purified from ego and fear and, and compulsion. And then when that, that will, that desire is discerned, that's in fact seen by Ignatius as the will of God. Yeah. That's amazing. Hallelujah, man. Like first, second, and third person experiences of, of the divine. Yeah. All, all within that experience. Anyway, well, we're riffing. Um, I'm feeling it now. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I mean, even talking about it, thinking about it, it's one of the great things about Integral is that we think thinking is, is good, you know, and it, it, it leads, you, as, as you said, you got to get the heart in there too. But for me, and I think different people do it differently, and different types of people do it differently. But for me, understanding has always been the, the point of the sword for my spiritual development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And the heart has followed, but uh, ho- hopefully closely behind. <laughs> Jeff, you've got a great heart. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, David. Great heart. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I see we're running out of time here, but... Um, we do have one question that I think is interesting, and um, maybe I'll give you a shot at it, David. Uh, the question is, how come at pre-conventional levels, the gods and goddesses had human foibles, but then at Amber, God is all perfect? It's mm, a great question. The, the great longing right, that comes online at Amber is the ability to transcend our dark sides. Yeah. And so, you know, the power of law is that somehow it'll curb 
us and it'll kind of control our our the monsters within us so um it's not surprising that you know you see the disappearance of these um these pantheons of very human capricious um demigods and find this emphasis on perfection which really comes online at that stage so yeah. i i would say that's my own no, little right on point of i think view. that's right i think that um <clears throat> <clears throat> focuses on the sort of interior side of the street. And I think that's exactly right. And I, I would add to the, on the exterior side of the street that it allows humanity to get more complex because yeah. there are, you know, we don't have to do the tribal thing. We don't have to, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I don't have to do a blood feud for, you know, five generations. Uh, I don't have to sacrifice because the final sacrifice has been made. You know, that just creates, a, 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 the, the, it clears the, all of that old brush away for ever more complex societies. So, actually, one more quick question to you, David, and it's actually one I'd like to hear, and it's from Mary Linda Landauer, who is a good friend and a supporter of the show. And she just says simply, I'm curious how Integral emerged in Father David. <laughs> oh, my Gosh. Forget the world. We want to know how did it emerge in you? Gosh, by fits and starts and a lot of painful, you know, backsliding and you know, <laughs> no backsliding. Gosh. Yeah, come on. I mean, it's the same way it happens. I think with all of us, um, you know, it's a it's a matter of experience and reflection and a lot of great people in my life and um, you know, I I find that the practice of a spiritual path over the long term. Um, whatever your spiritual path can be a big help along the way. And I've got a, a lot of support there. I've got a spiritual director I've been meeting with for years and, um, you know, our regular prayer practice. Um, and, you know, I was really blessed in my Jesuit formation to uh, be able to encounter the study of adult development and and uh, to do graduate work and doctoral studies in that yeah. area. And uh, I think, as you say, you know, understanding is a really powerful and potent uh, resource when it comes to our growth, but it just can't be that alone. It's got to be the second-person work of sorting through in our relationships and our love lives and our service of other people, um, how to overcome our own and integrate, you know, our own uh, shadow stuff. And, um, yeah, so I, I certainly can't... Uh, can't claim that it's anything but grace and a lot of good people in my life and and uh, gr a lot of grit. <laughs> yeah. So right on. Anyway. So. Yeah. Well, me too. And um, it's so great to have you join us, uh, David, Father David McCallum, uh, calling in from New York. I so appreciate your um, your good work and. Um, uh, is there any place that people can check online to see what you're up to or anything oh, you would no. refer us to? No, I like to keep a low profile. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, you know, I love hanging out with you guys, and I look forward to more of it over the years. And uh, at some point, you know, let's, um, let's think of some kind of an integral Christian retreat, uh, like along the lines of what you guys did uh, not too long ago. Yeah, well, more to come indeed. Okay. All right. All right. Love you, brother. Take Love care, you everybody. Too. Thanks, David. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And thank you all for joining us tonight. It was a great uh, conversation. I really enjoyed sharing it with you. And uh, I actually won't be here next week. Next week, I'm heading on Sunday to Esalen for the first time. I've never been to Esalen to uh, do a conference on political polarization with Steve McIntosh and the Institute for Cultural Evolution. So we will be returning, I don't know what that date is, but two weeks from tonight. And uh, thank you again for joining us and uh, keep it integral. Bye-bye, folks. <laughs>